Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I'm just popping in to talk to you about another addition to my updated required reading list for the youths a young adult book I just finished. And a quick note on pronunciation here. There's a lot of discussion in the book by the main character about how to pronounce her name, which is an Arabic name. And I do not know how to pronounce it. I spent a long time on the internet combing through things to try to figure out the correct pronunciation and was not able to find it. And I was not able to find someone who could say it for me. So I am very sorry in advance for mispronouncing this name. And it looks like an English name. And there's a lot of discussion in the book about how people keep pronouncing it with an English pronunciation and it upsets the character. So going into this review, I'm already at a disadvantage and I am sorry. I'm sorry. But the name of the book is Ida in the Middle by Nora Lester Murad, published November 22nd by Crocodile Books. Ida in the Middle tells the story of Ida, a young Palestinian-American teenager in Massachusetts, as she struggles to find a place of acceptance among her peers and works to understand why her family left the Middle East as well as what they lost when they did. When her teacher announces that a contest will be held for the class to present about a passion project, Ida becomes overwhelmed with anxiety. She feels a disconnect from anything that moves her. Whether Murad intended or not, and one imagines it must have been intentional. She captures the paralyzing and alienating depression and self-doubt that comes not just from being the face of a culture and people who are routinely vilified by the larger society, but also from cultural disconnect. At one point in the book, Murad has Ida relating to the confusion she imagines some much younger children in her neighborhood feel around growing up in a country that preaches fairness but gives weapons to bad guys and the jarring experience of then being labeled themselves a terrorist just because of the way they may look. This is deep stuff for a young book, or it would have been deep stuff compared to what I was assigned in my late tweens, early teens, which is the demographic for this particular title. But it's also deeply, deeply meaningful and important. Barad also really beautifully captures the catastrophizing and perseveration that accompany anxiety and depression. At an early point in the book, Ida fears failure in her passion project, feeling it will result in a series of worse and worse consequences, culminating in her family being forced into homelessness or the death of her parents. It feels like a stretch, right? Like going from the failure of a class assignment to being orphaned, But that's how anxiety works. It leads you down a path filled with fear and leaves you unable to see a way out. I don't recall ever being given a peer character who experienced anxiety in any of the books I read as a young person, let alone a book that explored that anxiety with care and without stigma. If I had, I may have been able to identify my own mental health struggles earlier, and perhaps I would have not felt so alone in them or so dysfunctional. At a point of deep melancholy, Ida reaches for a comforting snack, a jar of olives that were cured by her late and beloved 
Aunt Malika. Food as culture, food as home runs through this book. And at the moment Ida eats one of these olives, she is transported to a different version of her life. Her life as it would have been had her parents never left their home village near Jerusalem. The relief she feels at not being an outsider is palpable, even on the page. It's not that this alternate storyline eliminates all stressors in her life, but when you've been outside of your community for so long, returning to it can feel like putting down a sword and a shield. Murad uses this opportunity to educate the reader on the history of Israeli and Palestinian relations, how this turmoil came about, and what the landscape looks like today. I am admittedly out of touch with the middle school and early high school history curriculum in the United States, but it's my suspicion that a great number of kids are ignorant of this part of world history. While in her parents' village, Ida has the opportunity to meet family she's only ever heard about growing up in Massachusetts, including her brilliant and strong Aunt Malika, who is miraculously still alive. Ida also learns what it's like to be a young Palestinian person growing up today and struggles with understanding the nuances. In this way, Ida is a perfect avatar for a young reader, as Murad works to build empathy and understanding in an extremely fraught and complex situation. She handles it delicately and with compassion. Ida goes back and forth between her original world and this alternate version a couple of times during the book each time gaining more and more knowledge and building strength and resolve within herself. The book culminates with an Israeli attack on her village and a display of heroism on Ida's part. She is able to draw on this newfound resilience and knowledge when she shifts back to her life in Massachusetts, completing her passion project and seeing her family and herself in a new light. In Ida in the Middle, Murad has done a wonderful job of exploring and explaining a conflict that many adults fail to fully comprehend and breaking it down for a younger audience. Her tender and clear-eyed representation of mental health struggles is also truly admirable. In her gratitude section after the close of the book, Murad states that she was moved to write Ida in the middle for her daughters, Palestinian-American girls, and says, I think Reading helps fill the achy spaces in my girls' bi-national, bicultural, bilingual lives, and writing helps me to fill my own achy space as a Jew who knows things that are painful to know. That gratitude section is really so moving. I'm not normally one who reads acknowledgments, but I would really regret having missed out on these experiences. This history that she conveys in this book is something that feels missing or underrepresented in reading for young people today. So I'd like to humbly nominate it for inclusion on the required reading list. Thanks for hanging out with me today as I talked about Ida in the Middle by Nora Lester Murad. The link to that, as always, will be in the show notes. It was a delight to be here with you. If you want to find me online and make suggestions or discuss other books that deserve to be added to the required reading list, you can catch me on Instagram O underscore Murray. Until next time, friends, be well. Hey, 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 and welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast, the show that brings you the best of the best feminist content. I'm your host, Neva from Nuts by Neva, and today I am super stoked. I'm here with my friend, Liz Weinberg. Liz is a science communicator, storyteller, and community builder based in Tulanger. 
also known as Los Angeles. She is also the author of Unsettling, Surviving Extinction Together, which reimagines an environmentalism look that is queer, anti-racist, feminist, and just woven into every aspect of our lives. I had the absolute pleasure of reading this book. And while I won't be giving you guys explainers, I have Liz with us here today to talk a little bit about the book and how all of these themes intersect together. Liz, welcome to the pod. It is so exciting to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Awesome. So for those of us who are not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about kind of like how you got into science journalism, how this book came to be? And uh, then we can dive into some of these topics about the intersectionality of how the fight for climate crisis and climate rights is also a fight for basic human rights. Yeah, for sure. So my book, Unsettling, Surviving Extinction Together, looks at climate change and ecological destruction as directly coming from colonialism and white supremacy. And it looks to queerness as sort of a way of reimagining, seeing a way out. It uses science, landscape, pop culture, my own experience, all sorts of things to, to do this. And I came to it because I have a background as a science communicator. I've worked for a number of organizations, federal agencies doing science communication and social media and all sorts of things about ocean conservation and research and climate. And I was telling a lot of stories about science. And there wasn't a whole lot about queerness in those spaces. There wasn't a lot of people talking about the issues that the queer community was facing or issues of sort of social justice around climate change. And at the same time, as a queer person, I was doing queer activism, and a lot of my queer peers weren't really talking about the climate crisis, which makes sense. There are a lot of issues facing the queer community. So it felt like I had beat in both worlds, and and I was just like getting further and further into the splits. So I wanted to take those things and, and pull them closer together and figure out, you know, what does climate change and, and queerness have to do with each other? How is the climate crisis going to affect my queer community? But then also, what can queerness actually tell us about how to how to survive? And that's where the yeah, book came. Yeah, capitalism and a lot of like colonialism have definitely resulted in a lot of the issues that we're facing with the climate crisis. I'm curious kind of to hear more about what you mentioned about using queerness as a way to reimagine what the fight for environmental justice could look like. Yeah, so I mean, the climate crisis is going to and is already unevenly impact people. It's most impactful on communities that have historically been marginalized. So one of the things that excites me the most about queerness is, is the way it gives us a sense of possibility. So Jose Esteban Minos talks about queerness as a utopia, and not so much a utopia that's like, everything's going to be perfect, you know, no one's going to have to make any choices, we're just going to live in this place where everything is great, but rather a utopia where we're always striving for something better, something more. And I really love that idea of queerness as being a constant striving and a constant potential and figuring out, you know, what else we could have. One of the coolest things about queerness for me, at least when I was coming out as queer, was it made me realize how many things I could change in my life. You know, if I wasn't expected to, or rather if I'd been brought up thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to grow up. I'm going to have a husband. I'm going to have some kids. I'm going to live in the suburbs. I don't have to do any of those things. You know, I can be with someone who's not a man. We don't have to have kids. We might have family that doesn't necessarily look like blood family. What else is up for debate? And so queerness and the queer community gives us these possibilities to find something new and to build structures that are more adaptive and healthier for a lot of yeah, I really love that. So, oh gosh, recently, actually yesterday, I came across this term elevator relationship, which refers to when there's like a relationship that follows the standard sort of path where you have like cis, straight people who 
meet and it's a boy and a girl and they fall in love, they get married, they get engaged, they get married, they like get a house, they have kids. It's like this very straightforward path. And so for people who are not in this like standard elevator relationship, what your milestones and celebrations and things to achieve and like marks of the relationship might be look completely different because they don't follow this like set path. And so I really love this idea of just sort of breaking out of this mold of standardization and really challenging all these ideas that kind of are upheld as being the correct way just because we've been doing them so long. Can you give any examples of kind of like what type of ideas have been like that in environmentalism and fighting climate crisis? This sort of this idea of opening your mind to like other types of possibilities has been applied in a useful way. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that elevator relationship concept. Absolutely. I mean, the number of times I have said to my partner, I'm so glad we didn't feel like we had to follow that path. You know, we can do what we want. We can find these these new ways of being. We can make family where we want to have family. It really is just this beautiful way of, of being and existing in the world. In terms of how it shows up in the in the climate crisis and, and the fight for the climate for climate justice, really, I think of it the most in in mutual aid, which is not something that the queer community created by any means. You know, it comes out of a lot of different traditions, but so much of queerness is about found family and about creating family where maybe you wouldn't normally think to see it. So, so having these these friendships that transcend just sort of a basic yeah, we're, we're pals kind of relationship, but really like these deep, deep connections and having those connections helps us care for each other and helps us, you know, whether it's after a natural disaster. So making sure that your friends have this and they need or making sure, you know, when there were wildfires in Portland, you know, a lot of my friends were checking up on each other and saying, hey, do you actually have a place that has breathable air? You know, having these structures in place where we're watching out for each other, I think these communities of care is one thing that really comes out of queerness. Yeah, I really love this idea of the way in which we respond to each other is also part of this and the way in which we choose to take care of people who are near us and not just people who are emotionally near us, but also physically near us. Is It's really nice to see that kind of like sense of not just like one person and one connection, but a network that sort of supports each other. I'm curious to hear more about your take on eco-anxiety. You know, we've been hearing about the climate crisis for literally decades now. And sometimes it can be a lot to engage with media relating to the climate crisis and to be so aware of all of this, especially when it feels as though people just don't care. When in truth, a lot of people care and it's just certain people don't care. But then how do you navigate being immersed in all of this and sort of managing your own mental health and eco-anxiety at the same time? Yeah, the climate crisis is really overwhelming. It's really hard to do. You know, there were times that I would definitely have to just put my writing down and walk away from it for a little while. Or there's a part in the book where I say like, look, I had to go lie down and cry for a while. And I just had to do that. And I think in a lot of ways, writing this book was teaching myself how to grieve and how to really embrace the ways in which this crisis is really scary and really embrace the ways it is harming people I care about and putting that into conversation with other things my community has been through. So there's an essay in the book putting wildfires into conversation with the AIDS crisis and really allowing myself to feel that grief. Because I think a lot of eco-anxiety comes from this sense of overwhelm. I can't do it. The feelings are too big. I feel guilty because I'm part of the problem, but I feel helpless because I can't fix it by myself. 
and stepping back and saying, no, 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 this is really big and I need to feel this, I think is really important. And then I also like to remember that making us feel guilt and fear is a strategy that corporations have very specifically used. <laughs> Gotta buy this bamboo toothbrush, but don't look at us burning right. through so much oil. <laughs> yeah, fossil fuel companies have literally spent billions of dollars making us think about our own personal carbon footprint and thinking that, oh, if you, you know, walk to your coffee shop once instead of drive, well, that's going to make the difference. That's not going to make the difference at all. And so there are times where when I'm feeling that deep anxiety, I have to, like, this is not about me. You know, this is, this is about these corporations that are just basically looking for and think that profit is more important than the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. And so can I step away from my anxiety for a minute and reroute that energy into care, care for myself, care for my community and for curiosity, you know, what, what could come next? What could we do? Yeah. What are other ways of being? One thing I really like to focus on in my personal channel notes by Neva, where I talk a lot about sustainability and environment is looking at solutions and things that are going well. The Great Barrier Reef is surprisingly doing very, very well right now. That said, please don't like go there and spread your sunscreen all over it. But, you know, that's a very nice positive thing that is happening right now. It's hard to see the effects that corporations are having on our day-to-day lives, especially when they go through such lengths to hide them. In addition to convincing people that the solution to climate change lies within the individual or not within the government and within the like larger powers that be. Do you remember back in like, like a decade ago or something, bacon memes were all over the internet. It was just like bacon this and bacon that. And there was like bacon on everything. This was actually like a direct result of the bacon industry. <laughs> like what? hiring a bunch of people to create memes and put them all over the internet. Yeah, it's like one of the first large scale uses of like deploying money to create memes and put it all over the internet because it actually worked. Bacon sales like went up a bunch, like meat industry did really well. But it's wild because people are just like, oh, it's just a funny meme on the internet. And yet we don't realize, you know, oh, this actually came from an industry that like continues to uh, harm the world and underpay its workers and blah, blah, blah. And the idea that individual people need to be somehow responsible for being hyper aware of everything they buy and everything they eat, that's nonsense. Well, and if you are constantly checking the labels and constantly feeling anxious, you know what you're not doing? You're not going out and organizing. You're not working with your community to actually fight back against the oil terminal or to stop oil drilling in your neighborhood. I live in Los Angeles now and there's oil drilling that happens in the city. And if you're looking at the labels all the time, you're not going to actually be paying attention to that. It's really a like look over there campaign on the parts of these companies. I had no idea the bacon thing came from corporations, but I am not at all surprised because that's it's kind of how it works. And so we've got to learn to see through those things and say, like, who is who is benefiting from my anxiety right now? Oh, I really and love that. Thinking of if who benefits not, from the anxiety. If it's not me and it's not my community benefiting from my anxiety, why am I feeling it? I mean, you know, obviously, I'm a person who feels great amounts of deep anxiety. And you can't just say, ah, don't feel anxious anymore. But at least <laughs> I can ask myself the question, who is this serving? You know, who is who is profiting off of my anxiety right now? Yeah, I really love that reframing of it. And jumping off that idea of if you're too busy reading the labels and you're not going out and organizing, what would you say are kind of the two top things that an individual can do about the climate? Vote for people who both believe in climate science 
and want to do something about the climate crisis and support local efforts and efforts for indigenous sovereignty. Because those local efforts are some of the most effective in terms of making a difference in climate change. And indigenous sovereignty is so important. Indigenous peoples, the land that they tend is so much more biodiverse than anywhere else on the planet. And they're doing just really amazing work in terms of fighting against the climate crisis. And we have a lot to learn. Absolutely. There's been a lot of scientific studies that are claiming to refine things that have already been discovered by indigenous knowledge. And for, people can't for see me rolling my eyes right now. We're rolling our eyes so hard right now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to kind of touch on? I just really want people to, A, understand that the climate crisis is a social justice issue. You know, yes, there's, there's science there. Yes, it is an issue of the natural world, but it's going to affect everyone. And it's going to affect people who capitalism is already harming the most. And we've got to do something about that. We've got to change the way that we're doing things in order to to help our communities. And then I also would just invite people to feel curiosity and to feel feel that spark about the world around them, because that, I think, is how we keep from from driving ourselves into this deep abyss of climate anxiety is to keep seeing the world and seeing our communities and seeing each other and saying, yeah, no, this is a pretty magical place we live. Yeah. Keeping that curiosity alive and keeping that inspiration alive. I love that so much. Oh, thank you so much, Liz, for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Absolutely. And for our listeners out there, Unsettling is available now at your local bookstore. We'll be having books linked into the description as always and everything that's been talked about in our show notes. And that'll be all for today. You can find me on any platform, Notes by Neva, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Liz, where can our listeners find you if they want to reach out to you directly? Yeah, folks can find me on Twitter and Instagram at EA Weinberg and at my website, elizabeth-weinberg.com. Awesome. And we'll keep all that in your show notes for you guys. Thank you so much for joining me, Liz. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. From Simon & Schuster, today we want to introduce you to a book that will have you laughing out loud and crying tears of joy. Sorry, Sorry, Sorry by Marjorie Ingall and Susan McCarthy is the ultimate guide to apologies. And let's be real, we could all use a little help in that department. Whether you're a serial apologizer or someone who struggles to say sorry, this book has something for everyone. But don't let the serious subject matter fool you. Sorry, Sorry, Sorry is bursting with wit and humor. You're going to love their deep introspection and laugh-out-loud humor about the art of apology. This book is a must-read for anyone looking to improve their relationships and communication skills. So pick up your copy of Sorry, Sorry, Sorry today and start your journey towards better relationships and communication. Trust us, you won't be sorry you did. See what we did there? Click the link in our show notes to order your copy. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.